We were reading On the Day I Died by Candace Fleming. We had just started this book, so I'm going to go back and read from the very beginning. If you remember, these are stories from the grave, and there are about 10 chapters, and they're each by a certain person. So this chapter is by Mike. It was after midnight, and Mike Kowalski was driving fast, too fast, down Country Line Road. He glanced at the dashboard clock and groaned. He was late. Again. His phone rang. It didn't take ESP to know it was his mother. She probably wants to get a jump start on her griping, Mike muttered to himself. Earlier that evening, she had told him to be in by midnight or else. Midnight, Mike had complained, but I'm a junior. His mother had rolled her eyes. After the stunts you pulled this week, you're lucky to be allowed out at all. So I'll reiterate, midnight or else. Mike didn't even want to think about what or else meant. Ignoring the call, he mashed down the accelerator. Maybe if he was only a little late, that was when the girl appeared in his headlights. One minute, there was nothing but country road flanked by the thick woods of the Cook County Forest Preserve with its one-lane bridge over Salt Creek just ahead, and the next minute, there she was, stumbling down the center line. Mike slammed on his brakes. The tires squealed as the car skidded, but the girl never flinched. Eyes wide, unblinking, even in the glare of the headlights, she raised her hands, palms up, pleading. But for what? Mike stuck his head out the driver's side window. The girl's skin glowed marble white, and her long, dark hair soaked lay plastered against her skull. Her simple cotton dress was wet, too. Mike saw water dripping from the hem. Are you okay, he asked. I'm cold, her voice was a whisper. I need a ride home. Mike glanced at the clock again and grimaced. He'd rather have a root canal than experience the torture his mother was sure to have in store for him. Then again, what difference would a few more minutes make? He was already in trouble. Besides, he couldn't leave her out here alone, could he? He leaned across the front seat and opened the passenger door. Climb in. Wordlessly, the girl settled into the seat and the car filled with the smell of lavender and wet leaves. Mike watched as she slipped off her shoes, a pair of old-fashioned black-and-white saddle shoes, and neatly laid them side-by-side side on the floor of the car. They're brand new, she said, and then she folded her hands in her lap and waited. Where to, Mike, asked Mike. <clears throat> the girl's strange behavior was beginning to freak him out a little. Was she sick or suffering from a concussion or amnesia or something? Do you need a doctor? She pointed behind them. Mike turned the car around, driving more slowly this time. What's your name? She looked straight ahead. Carol Ann. I'm Mike, Mike Kowalski. Eyes still on the road, he extended his right hand. She didn't acknowledge the introduction, didn't even look at him. Mike drummed his fingers on the steering wheel, curiosity getting the best of him. So what happened back there? She let several long minutes pass before answering. I was canoeing on Hawthorne Lake. After midnight? In October? She acted as if she hadn't heard his question. My canoe tipped. I couldn't ride it, and it was a long way to shore, too far to swim. All I could do was cling to the side and pray someone would find me, but no one did. So how'd you finally get to shore? She looked at him then, and in the green glow of the dashboard, she appeared even paler, her skin almost translucent in its whiteness. The current carried me in, she answered, her voice sounding colder than the October lake. I was in the water for a long, long time. 
Mike swallowed hard. That's awful. Yes, she said, and then she pointed. Turn here. Mike made a left onto a narrow gravel road. The car bumped along for a few miles, tree branches scratching at its paint, rocks skittering beneath its tires. It never ceased to amaze him how rural some parts of the Chicago area could be. It was like cruising through the Wisconsin wilderness or someplace. His phone rang again, and he ignored it. They drove deeper and deeper into the woods. Here, said Carolyn at last. Stop here. Mike braked. In the darkness, his headlights picked out a mailbox. It read Morrissey. Beside it, he could just make out the start of a dirt driveway. Is this where you live? Is that your last name, Morrissey? I'll get out here, said the girl, and she opened the passenger door. But why, argued Mark. It's dark. Let me drive you down to your house. Make sure you get in all right. You know my story now, she said, climbing from the car. But it's not the only one. There are many of us. What's that supposed to mean, asked Mike. But she had already vanished. Carol Ann, he called into the darkness. Hey, Carol Ann? No one answered. Reluctantly, he headed for home. He was already back on the county line road when he noticed her shoes, that perfect pair of saddle shoes sitting in a puddle on the floor mat. Impulsively, he turned the car around and raced back toward the narrow gravel road and the even narrower dirt driveway with the mailbox marked Morrissey. He found himself in front of a tired-looking farmhouse with a sagging front porch and peeling paint. In his headlights, long shadows from the surrounding trees gripped the colorless house. Every window was a dark hole, the family obviously asleep. Maybe this wasn't such a great idea, Mike thought uneasily. Maybe I should come back in the morning. And yet he had the oddest feeling that someone was awake in that old house. He knew it made little sense. The place was as silent as a grave, yet he felt that someone was there and that that someone was waiting for him. He got out of the car, taking the shoes with him, and mounted the porch steps. As he raised his fist to knock, the curtain at the front door shifted. He heard a faint rustling behind the door. He knocked. The porch light snapped on. The door swung open. And standing there was a woman as tired and sagging as her old house. You've come to return her shoes, haven't you? Mike stammered, yeah, yes. How did you know? Someone always returns her shoes, the woman interrupted, always on October 26th, every year on this very date. Mrs. Morrissey, said Mike, is Caroline still awake? Can I speak with her, please? The woman gave a hollow laugh. Caroline is dead. She's been dead 56 years this very night. Drowned in a canoeing accident over on Hawthorne Lake, she did. My poor baby. Her body was in that freezing water for hours. I, I, I don't believe you. I just saw her. I just talked with her. None of you ever believe me, the woman said, but it's God's own truth. I wish it wasn't, but it is. She's dead. Mike didn't like looking at the woman's white, sorrow-etched face. Her skin looked as if you could push a pencil through it and not draw any blood. She went on. Every year on the anniversary of her accident, she walks Country Line Road, searching, I suppose, for the help that never came. And every year she leaves her shoes. New shoes, they were, bought the very morning of the accident. Oh, Carol Ann loved those black and white saddle shoes. To this day, I don't know why she wore them out canoeing. The woman's face seemed to collapse. In truth, I don't know why she even went canoeing that day. It was so cold. She sniffled. You know, I've been answering this door for decades now, reliving the horror of my baby girl's death over and over again. I'm tired of it. I can't take the grief anymore. And she moved to shut the door. Wait, cried Mike. What about her shoes? 
You want to return them to her, you'll have to take them over to the cemetery. She's buried in a special plot reserved just for young folks. I thought she'd like that, resting with people her own age. Mrs. Morrissey pointed back the way he'd come. You just take a right out at that gravel road, go about four miles, and take a left on an overgrown path. The cemetery entrance is a few feet down. Look close. It's hard to spot. Not many folks go out there these days. And with that, she shut the door. The porch light snapped off. Mike made his way back to the car. His phone was ringing when he opened the door. He tossed it into the back seat. He needed to think. He didn't know what was going on, but it couldn't, couldn't, it couldn't be what Mrs. Morrissey claimed it was, could it? That was impossible. As impossible as an alien invasion or the existence of Bigfoot. Yeah, if you say so, a voice whispered in his head. But if you go home now, you'll wonder about it for the rest of your life. You'll always regret that you didn't seek out the truth. Forget that, Mike said aloud. Quickly, before he could change his mind, he hung a right and stepped on the accelerator. He almost missed the dirt path. It was too narrow for the car to get down. He parked at the side of the road and, grabbing the saddle shoes, got out of the car. From the back seat, his phone went off again. Its ring sounded plaintive, beseeching. He stopped. He should answer it. Already, he could hear his mother crying, "'Oh, my God, Mikey!' The relief thick in her voice. "'Where have you been? Come home this instant!' And for the first time in his entire teenage life, he would do exactly what she said. He would turn the car around, forget about Caroline and her shoes, and go home. But the voice in his head whispered again, more loudly this time, It'll only take ten minutes. What ten, what's ten minutes? You're already late, and then you'll know for sure. Reich said Mike. He started to pick his way down the path, the sound of the ringing phone fading behind him. The path was little more than a suggestion. He fought his way through shrubs and buckthorn, the forest pressing in from both sides. At last, what nature had worked so hard to conceal came into view. White Cemetery. That was what the words on the metal archway read. A tall, wrought iron fence enclosed the graveyard, but the gate sagged open with age, and in places there were gaping holes where the rods had gone missing. Taking a steadying breath, Mike stepped through the gates onto consecrated ground. The sky was bright with moonlight, although he couldn't see the moon itself. The tall trees ringing the cemetery had blotted it out. A ground mist like vaporous tendrils seeped from the loamy, weed-thick earth. He noticed how the path, the same one he had followed through the woods, ran like a church aisle down the center of the graveyard, ending at an algae-covered lagoon. He noticed also that nothing stirred, not the rustle of bat's wings or the hoot of an owl or the sigh of the rising wind. It had obviously been a long time since anyone had placed flowers or pulled weeds here. Forgotten. The word popped into Mike's head. These graves and the people in them had been forgotten. The headstones at the back of the cemetery near the lagoon looked especially old. They jutted from the earth like crooked teeth, some leaning sideways, others flat on their backs. The ones at the front were newer, and Mike bent, hands on knees, to take a closer look. Lily, 1982 to 1999. Cold droplets of mist slithered down his neck. Seventeen, Mike thought, just a year older than me, and he felt a sudden urge to flee. You've come this far, the voice in his head whispered. Don't you want to know if she's really out here or not? I do, said Mike aloud, but his voice shook. All his senses were on high alert. Wearily, he looked, worked his way through the cemetery row by row. Most of the headstones were simple marble or granite markers, chipped or cracked by time, some crusted with lichen. Others were shaped like hearts or crosses. A few more elaborate ones showed be 
beatific angels soaring toward heaven with children clutched to their chest. But all of them shared one thing. The person who occupied each grave was young, somewhere between the ages of 13 and 18. Fear, cold and heavy, pressed down on Mike. Now he understood what Mrs. Morrissey had meant by people her own age. This was a cemetery for teenagers. He backed away, suddenly all too aware that he was alone in a graveyard in the middle of the night. His thoughts whirled, his imagination blooming. Visions of rotting corpses filled his mind. He could see their greedy fingers straining through the soil and mist, groping for one of his shoes. In the shadowy darkness, he tripped over something, landing with a hollow thump beside a tall gravestone, roses and leaves carved deep into its granite face. Mike pushed himself to his knees and looked closer. Carol Ann Morrissey. 1941 to 1956. He uttered a low cry as the truck struck him. As the truth struck him, sorry. He had given a ride to a ghost, but it wasn't this that sent him reeling over the edge toward terror. No, it was the realization of what he had tripped over. Saddle shoes. 55 pairs of saddle shoes lay scattered across the weed-choked mound of Carol Ann's grave. One for every year she had been dead. Some had been exposed to the weather so long that they were nothing more than strips of shapeless leather. Others were newer, covered with just a thin blush of mildew. But the newest pair, the brand new pair, was the one Mike still clutched in his trembling hand. He screamed then, flinging the shoes and shattering the tomb-like silence of the graveyard. Shh! You'll wake the dead, the voice in his head whispered. Too late. The surrounding trees closed in and the shadows deepened. The weeds tangled around his feet and ankles as if to hold him in place. And then a cloud swallowed the moon and he was enveloped in a total darkness. The wind rose suddenly, causing the tree branches to scratch and mutter. Listen to us. Hear us. Breathing rapidly as if he'd just run a long race, Mike cried, Is someone there? Listen to us. Hear us. Carol Ann, he croaked. He looked around with wide, frightened eyes, his heart beating so hard he could feel it in his neck and wrists as well as his chest. Listen to us. Hear us. Go away! He tried to scream, but he could no longer speak. His heart was hammering at a terrified pace. Collapsing onto the mound of saddle shoes, he moaned. He could see them. They were all around him, flickering shadows as insubstantial as drawings on air, a girl wearing a long, old-fashioned skirt, a boy with a camera looped around his neck, and others, a ring of wan shapes hovering on the fringes of the shifting shadows. It's a sign when the dead appear, the voice in his head whispered, a sign of your own death. Mike moaned again. Me first. A girl moved, and as she did, the moon reappeared as bright and white as a polished bone. In its light, Mike could see she had on a school uniform, a cotton blouse beneath a blue plaid jumper. Around her neck, she wore a string of cheap plastic pearls. She reached for Mike, her death-pale fingers trembling and eager. No, please! Crab-like, he scrambled backward over the skittering saddle shoes until his back was pressed against Caroline's gravestone. The girl's hand fell to her side. Sighed, is I, am I as scary as all that? I don't mean to be. It's just that I've been waiting for such a long time and well. Her words trailed away and she looked back at the others. Go ahead, came a voice from the shadows. Tell him, urged another. The girl turned back to Mike and she smiled uncertainly. We want to tell you our stories, she said. Our death stories. Death, rasped Mike. She nodded, her eyes filling with luminous moonlight. And this one is mine.
Ooh, that's scary. So tomorrow's story will be about Gina. She was born in 1949 and died in 1964. So I will see you tomorrow, guys.